Okay, everyone. Thank you very much for coming to this week's Southeast Asian Studies Seminar. I'm really pleased to see such a large crowd. And uh, we're very fortunate today to have Dr. Po Sukai with us. Uh, Dr. Po has come a long, long way. He lives in Kuala Lumpur, uh, but he's come a long, long way to speak with us. And um, uh, he's, got, he's also uh, traveled, I guess, metaphorically, temporally a long way to this point in time. Uh, so I'm, I'm really glad he's here. Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with his background, Dr. Poe was president of the University of Malaya Socialist Club between 1954 and 55, and his secretary general in 55-56. He was a member of the eight-person editorial board of the Socialist Club newsletter, Faja, uh, who were charged by the colonial government in 1954 with sedition. Uh, he was a founding member of the People's Action Party in 1954, and then was later Assistant Secretary General of the Barisan Socialists in 19, when it was established in 1961. In 1963, he was detained without trial under Operation Store and was held in two periods for a total of 17 years without trial. He's recently published his memoir, uh, Living in a Time of Deception, which has just launched in Singapore and Malaysia. So today, uh, Dr. Poe is going to talk to us about his experience, his life, the lessons he's learned from a, a very, very long political career. And he really wants this to be a much more interactive session. So uh, what we're going to do, uh, what he's requested, is that I start with um, 10 minutes giving some sort of historical background, a framework, context, um, which I'll, just, I'll do as briefly as possible. Then Dr. Poe will speak for about 20 minutes. And so that will be just half an hour. And hopefully the other hour, he'd love to take questions and get a real dialogue flowing. He'd in particular love to hear from the Singaporeans and Malaysians <coughs> in the room. Um, because you know, Dr. Poe's seen a lot, experienced a lot, and he'd love to impart whatever he can, help you in whatever he can to make a better future for our country. So um, with that in mind, I'm just going to start with a couple of words about... Um, the historical context, okay, okay, and um, historiographically, right? Um, in the historiography, why does Doctor Poe's book matter? And it matters uh, because it speaks to a number of different histories, and I'm going to highlight two, I think, which are of great importance. And the first, of course, is that it really speaks to Singapore or Malayan history. Now, uh, Singapore history, of course, has been dominated by uh, a historical perspective which privileges um, English language sources and which privileges uh, an elite point of view, the viewpoint of those in power. And this alone, having only this perspective has distorted how we view our own history. We, you know, we, we draw our own values, our assumptions, how we view the world from our history. But when that history is of a single set of perspectives, that not only limits how we see the world, but also means that we are unable to recognize the diversity of viewpoints. And this means we end up with a very flawed um, set of assumptions, um, a flawed and incomplete understanding of our history. Uh, you know, for example, there are many in the United States who still refuse to uh, recognize, they, they, they wish to view the past through a dominant white perspective, um, arguing, for example, that the Civil War is primarily about state liberty and freedom, despite evidence to the contrary. Right? Likewise, there are, of course, people in Germany who 
argue that you know the Third Reich was uh, a positive force uh, by bringing economic stability to the uh, to Germany in the midst of the Great Depression. Uh, it ended mass unemployment using heavy military spending and a mixed economy, and it undertook extensive public works. For example, the Autobahn, which uh, underpins Germany's economic strength today. Right. So, likewise in Singapore. Uh, official PAP his history and the apologists for their history argue that the arrest and detention without trial of 172 people in 1963 and the destruction of their lives was a necessary step for economic stability and the ending of mass unemployment and Singapore's present stability and prosperity. So my point is not to draw moral equivalence between the Nazis and between the PAP, right? but to point out that if you don't give full historical context to your argument, you end up looking pretty foolish, right? If you simply make statements without considering all the different perspectives, then you end up um, being, you know, coming up pretty silly. And so equally, it's one thing to make an honest argument based on limited, a limited source base. But when new evidence arises, uh, you need to evaluate it honestly and to modify your arguments accordingly. But unfortunately, as myself and other historians of Singapore have learned to our dismay, the PAP government in Singapore insists on perpetuating a very flawed uh, understanding of our past, limited to a very specific <coughs> set of <coughs> perspectives. And this is a really huge problem because there are important lessons that we learn from the past. We are enriched immeasurably by understanding the lives of the oppressed the, vi the voiceless, the disenfranchised throughout history, not just because these are inherently valuable in and of themselves, but because they help us make better policies, make better, have better governance today. Right? You cannot govern a country effectively and for the benefit of all when you only understand the historical experience of 10% of the people. You end up seeing you know, inaccurate generalizations like Singapore is a conservative country. Singaporeans are conservative people. Therefore, we need to have our very prescriptive racial and ethnic and gender policies, despite evidence to the contrary, right? History suggests Singaporeans are very open-minded, right? But we need to uh, critically examine these assumptions. Or you say things like, we need the ISA to uh, guarantee Singapore's security, when the fact is that no one charged under the ISA has ever been brought to trial for the charges they were uh, charged under, they were detained under, let alone charged in open court, let alone convicted, right? Or you end up saying something really, really stupid like, you know, in the PAP, we don't backstab our mentors, right? As a certain minister did at the last election. <clears throat> but you see, this, this conflict was never as simple as just a security risk. And this is something I feel is overlooked in the controversy over Coastal, over Spectrum, over the use of ISA. Because it's not just about security, it's not just about the use of a law. The point is not just that Lee Kuan Yew wanted power and wanted to get rid of his opponents. You know, that's by and by. Um, it is the fact that by seizing power, he also forcibly suppressed alternative visions of Singapore's future. Right? Visions in which we are potentially more inclusive or more tolerant or more prosperous, where we treat our citizens with greater dignity and freedom where you know, we are a thriving economy and a thriving democracy. The central debate in Malaya in two decades after the British reoccupation of the country was fundamentally what kind of country will Malaya be after independence? What are our values? What, whose country is this? Who are the citizens of Malaya? What does it mean to be Malayan? 
right? And this vibrant debate, which was very much necessary for our future, was shut down through repression and violence, and eventually through a constitutional structure which today we call Malaysia. And the answer that was imposed upon us was that of a narrow elite. Um, and a narrow elite belonged to Singapore and the Federation of Malaya and Britain, British leaders, right? And this answer is one in which race and religion are politicized and very much uh, prescribed, right? In which identity, Malayan identity is exclusive, not inclusive. Uh, in which you're only really Malaysian if you're Malay and Muslim and speak Malay. Right, in which you're only Singaporean if you're Chinese and speak English, and to a lesser extent if you're Christian. And both countries openly discriminate against minorities, against women, right, which perpetuates uh, neoliberalism, which perpetuates economic inequality. And not only that, but they do so on the basis of this flawed and one-sided uh, history, a constructed history designed to justify this oppression designed to justify this narrow rule by a pro-British elite. And this leads me to my second point, because the point of this historical construction was, let's be clear, to further uh, British um, strategic and political and economic goals. Uh, a very broad pattern, a very broad generalization of British rule uh, was British decolonization. Colonization and decolonization was divide and rule. Uh, to find local collaborators, to force large swathes of the population in economic slavery, to introduce British legal and political institutions, to ensure compliance, to deindustrialize the country and turn it into a supply of raw materials for British industry, uh, to forcibly integrate local economies into global capital. And when it came time to leave, they uh, tried where possible to find local collaborators to whom they could hand power to and establish elections to legitimize these local collaborators. And if these people were not the favored people of the local electorate, then, well, we find ways to legally fix the elections, fix the electorate, fix the system. We arrest and detain the people who would win the popular election but who, are, uh, who would not form a pro-British government, people like Dr. Polk. And let's make no mistake, the PAP won in 1963 only because 172 members of the political opposition, people who would have won the election, were all arrested, all behind bars. Right? They would have not won a free and fair election. As it was, they scraped by with a minority of the vote. And so Dr. Poe's book also speaks to uh, the broader history of decolonization. The history of decolonization has actually shifted very rapidly in the last decade and a half. When I started my DPhil here in 2005, the field was actually still dominated by opinions like Nal Ferguson and his book Empire, which released in, was released in 2003 and was subtitled How Britain Made the Modern World. It was unashamedly positive about the impact, the effects of British colonialism. And this book was embraced by world leaders and uh, among them the Bush administration, <coughs> right, which saw in its telling of history a lesson for its own use of power abroad and in particular in the Middle East. One decade later, we have a very different understanding of uh, history. We have, a, we have come to understand that they drew the wrong lessons from history. The world today is much more skeptical about the positive impact of colonialism. And Dr. Poe's book is an important intervention in this history. It not only tells of the destructiveness of colonialism, but in its existence alone, right, and its previous lack of existence, uh, it helps explain why we erroneously thought colonialism worked. 
because the voices of those who lost out from it, the voices of those who were disenfranchised, were oppressed, were for many years suppressed and left out of history. So the lessons we drew were from a very flawed history to begin with. And if we do not learn the lessons of the past, uh, if our governments continue to suppress the past and aggressively come after historians who refuse to toe the line to people who tell different stories, different perspectives, then Singapore will also face one day face its Iraq moment. And so it's uh, acts of courage like Dr. Poe's in publishing his historical memoir when very few others who've gone through his experience there too, you know, which help us avoid that moment. <coughs> and lastly, let's not forget, it's not just Singapore at stake here because for all the repressive authoritarian countries around the world which seek to legitimize their repression through economic performance, they point to Singapore as an example, right? Putin and, and the Chinese government, you know, uh, they've all cited Singapore. But those of us who understand history know that it is far more complicated, right? It's far more nuanced than the PAP story. So it's just not for us, but it's for people all around the world um, whether well-intentioned or not. It's for regimes all around the world, whether well-intentioned or not, who seek to become another Singapore. For all the people who live under those regimes, that we need stories like Dr. Post to enter common knowledge. And so, I think um, that's enough from me. So without further ado, uh, we're going to have 20 minutes from Dr. Poe, and then we'll open for questions. <coughs> so, Dr. Poe, please. Right. Greetings, Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, friends and compatriots from both sides of the Johor Causeway. <coughs> Firstly, a word of thanks to Dr. Pinchin Tham and Dr. M.J. Walton for organizing this launch of my historical memoir, Living in a Time of Deception. Thank you for your hard work. This book began as a personal memoir, but pretty soon I found this framework rather inadequate. Thankfully, Wong Suki and Lisa Hong came into the picture and helped to fashion this book into a historical memoir, dealing with the politics of Singapore in the period 1954 to 1965, where we witnessed, among others, the very important events in our bilateral history of merger in 1963 and the subsequent acrimonious separation from Malaysia in 1965. So, living in a time of deception turned out to be a historical memoir focusing on my role in and my understanding of the politics of that epoch. <clears throat> what we, Singaporeans and Malaysians, on either side of the Johor Causeway are living with today is the fallout of the failed Malaysian merger plan. After the Second World War, the British government was short of cash and unable to maintain most of its military bases scattered around the world. Yet, it was determined 
to keep the Singapore military base under its direct control. This was manifestly clear from the McMichael Treaty immediately post Second World War, which created the Malayan Union that excluded Singapore, leaving it in British hands. The opposition of the people in mainland Malaya and island Singapore towards this Malayan Union scheme as embodied in the nationwide Hatal movement of October 20th, 1947 was uh, for a unified and progressive Malaya. This was completely ignored by the British. Britain needed to keep the Singapore military base in this region because of the spectacular rise of the anti-colonial movement in the Far East had brought Mao Zedong to power in China and Sukarno in Indonesia, the two most populous countries in the region. The threat posed by China and Indonesia to Britain's imperialist ambitions in the aftermath of World War II was palpable. Hence, the British military base in Singapore was essential. The British archive revealed that one of UK's strategic aims in the Far East was to, I quote, maintain an independent contribution to the nuclear deterrent against China. It was also necessary for the British to obtain some semblance of recognition from the United States that the weakened British still could play a supportive role in this region to advance the interests of the United States globally. Thus, by 1961, Britain had stationed heavy bombers capable of carrying nuclear bombs aimed at China in its Singapore military base. In the same vein, Britain adopted a very proactive stance towards Indonesia to topple Sukarno. The effectiveness of the Singapore base in advancing British interests was suddenly demonstrated in the role it played in dispatching troops to squash the Brunei Rebellion in December 1962. However, with the resurgence of the left wing in Singapore in 1961, as seen in the by-election victories in Honglim and Anson, Britain was not at all assured that its military base in Singapore would be effective in what the British referred to inverted commas, as a sea of hostile local population, close inverted commas. In 1961, Lee Kuan Yew's government seemed unable to resist the popular left-wing forces calling for independence and control of internal security. As the Singapore military base was still necessary for Britain's strategic evaluation of the region against China and Indonesia 
it must now be protected under a different arrangement. This was the cardinal reason why the British engineered the merger of Peninsula Malaya and Island Singapore in 1963. It was to safeguard the effectiveness, the effective use of the military base in Singapore. Britain therefore took the Malaysia merger plan out of the cupboard, gave it a dusting and put it on fast track. Lord Selkirk, the British High Commissioner, made it exceedingly clear that the merger of Singapore into Malaysia was a non-negotiable term of the new political entity. As far as the Tunku in Malaya was concerned, he was not keen to have what he saw as a left-wing and Chinese majority Singapore. The British had to and the British had to entice him by including the Borneo territories of present-day Sabah and Sarawak in the Malaysia package. There is documentation in the archive that shows that the Tunku had wanted our arrest as a precondition for merger with Singapore. There is no doubt on that. Likewise, I have no doubt that Lee Kuan Yew desired our arrest at that juncture in history. Under threat from the recent left-wing by electoral victories, Lee Kuan Yew's hope was that with merger, the Tunku would arrest his left-wing opponents in Singapore for him. But the Tunku would not take that odium for Lee. Each had his own reason for our arrest. <clears throat> but it was the British who called the shots, as it was imperative upon them to drain away that sea of hostile hostility against their base in Singapore. <clears throat> Finally, Operation Cold Storm of February the 2nd, 1963, was a tripartite undertaking of the British, Malaya, Singapore that crippled the open democratic left-wing movement in Singapore. As we can see from here, the three parties involved in setting up Malaysia had no vision had no vision of forming a nation. They came together for political reasons of their own. Once inside Malaysia, Lee Kuan Yew sought to replace Tan Siu Sin and the MCA as the Tunku's Chinese partner in the Alliance Coalition. Clearly from here, we can see that Lee was not against UMNO's communal politics in Malaysia in ideology or principle. However, 
when he failed to persuade the Tungku to let go of Tan Siu Sin, he then decided he would enter the Malaysian general election in 1964 to prove to the Tungku that he commanded more Chinese support than the MCA. <coughs> Even though he had promised the Tungku that he would not take part in that election coming so close on the heel of merger, Lee broke his word. To Lee's consternation, the PAP failed miserably in the 1964 general election, winning only one out of five seats contested. Lee Kuan Yew was staring into a bleak and dim future in Malaysia. At this juncture, it is timely to recall an earlier conversation Lee had with PBC Moore, the acting British High Commissioner in Singapore, in which he informed Moore that if he had no place in Malaysia, the odds for success of Malaysia would be nil. Lord Selkirk, in his clairvoyance, had indicated that in such an eventuality, Lee Kuan Yew would resort to racial politics in Malaysia, and as intended and expected, AMNO would retaliate and communal sparks would fly, and thus was, was ignited the July 1964 rioting in Singapore. It was in this unhappy state of affairs that in December 1964, the Tunku wrote to Lee, suggesting that they should discuss the possibility of consti constitutional rearrangement between the two territories that did not necessarily hive off Singapore. However, had it not been for intervening events that were fast-changing Britain's continuing need for the base in Singapore, the Tunku would have been powerless to propose any constitutional rearrangement with Lee. The first intervening event was that on October 16, 1964, the Chinese had exploded its first atomic bomb. As a consequence, the Singapore military base raison d'etre to contain China by nuclear deterrence was moved. The second intervening event was the impending downfall of Sukarno. By December 1964, the British were rather confident that their machinations in Indonesia would be bearing fruit and that the end of Sukarno was round the corner. Even Sukarno himself had premonitions as he entitled his January 1965 speech as the year of living dangerously. 
Sukarno did not last out 1965. In view of these two factors, the usefulness of the British military base in Singapore was rapidly diminishing, and the British permitted the Tunku and Lee to explore a new arrangement between Malaya and Singapore in the period around the end of 1964 and the beginning of 1965. At this stage, the new arrangement still envisaged defence and foreign affairs to remain in the hands of the Tunku <coughs> with only some form of autonomy accorded to Singapore. However, by July 1965, when it became obvious that Sukarno's fall was in the cards, the separation of Singapore from Malaysia, an option favoured by Lee Kuan Yew and Go Keng Sui, was permitted by the British to be raised in the talks between Razak and Go Keng Sui. To hasten the pace for separation, the PAP held the Malaysian Solidarity Convention in May 1965. It is to be noted that the left-wing parties in Malaysia declined the invitation to participate in this so-called Malaysian Solidarity. Masquerading under a perfectly neutral and inclusive slogan, Malaysia for Malaysians, the convention took on an overtly anti-Malay line, resulting in communal tensions between Malays and Chinese. Thus, to prevent further communal violence, in August 1965, separation as desired by Lee and Go, became a reality. Yet, Lee shed crocodile tears on television. By happy coincidence, as would, as would innocently appear to British imperialist designs, Sukarno fell at the end of September 1965 in the incident known as G30S, which I will not go into here. Suffice to say, any remaining reason for UK to hold on to the military base in Singapore became invalid. Malaysia had come into being, not because there was any genuine desire to build a nation out of the territories of Malaya, Singapore and Borneo territories, its reason that it was, to, was solely to protect the British military base in Singapore. Once the usefulness of the base was gone, UK packed up and left. Today, we are living in the fallout of this failed Malaysia merger scheme. The British had ordered our mass arrest 
in order to maintain the Singapore military base in 1963, and abdicated the responsibility to free us when the base was no longer useful. Today, they present themselves as advocates of democracy and human rights, but are silent on their past role in Malaya and Singapore. They arrested us under Operation Cold Storm and failed to release us when they handed Singapore over to Malaysia via the merger plan. Hence, the British must share the odium of our continued detention without trial over many long years in the inhuman treatment of solitary confinement for months and in the subsequent waves upon waves of arrests that followed. Today, the relations between Malaysia and Singapore are not friendly. Singapore is known to have interfered in the political affairs of Malaysia to enhance its own economic position. An example of such interference occurred during Tunku Razali's fight against Dr. Mahathir for the leadership of UMNO. Today, the communal tension within the country in both Malaysia and Singapore is heightened compared to the days when I was a student. Very unfortunately, in the process of the Malaysia merger and separation, Lee Kuan Yew and the PAP have played the communal card to the hilt, whipping up both Malay and Chinese chauvinism with the Malaysian Solidarity Convention and the Malaysian-Malaysia slogan. The British, having achieved their aim in the region and finding their base no longer necessary and costly to maintain, had long packed up and gone, leaving us with this fallout today as we stare at each other divided by the Johor Causeway. Thank you. <clears throat>